0: Welcome to the next episode of Vinyasa in Verse. How are you today? I hope you're having a beautiful day. Uh, For this episode, I've got a special guest, my dear friend, poet, essayist, editor, and mama extraordinaire, Camille Dungy. So just a little bit about her. She is the author of four four poetry books, including Trophic Cascade and the essay collection, The Guidebook to Relative Strangers, Journeys into Race, Motherhood, and History. She's also edited two anthologies, including Black Nature, Four Centuries of African American Nature Poetry. She was recently awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship, which is so exciting, and that's only one of the many accolades she's received. She teaches at Colorado State, if you want to find her. And stalk her, because she's awesome, uh, where she lives with Hubs and her girl, C.V. So thank you, Camille, for coming. I'm so grateful that you um, have given me your time to just talk a little bit about poetry and spirituality and how nature kind of weaves in to both of those things. Um, but like I do with every podcast episode, I open with a poem by Hefez. <clears throat> and this one is called Just Looking for Trouble. I once had a student who would sit alone in his house at night, shivering with worries and fears. And come morning, he would often look as though he had been attacked by a ghost. Then one day, my pity crafted for him a knife from my own divine sword. Since then, I have become very proud of this student. For now, come night, Not only has he lost all his fear, now he goes out just looking for trouble. (laughs) So for me, the things that jump out at me for this poem are um, losing all the the fear um, and then actually going out and, and looking for trouble, which can be interpreted different ways. But um, I wanted to just ask you some thoughts you might have on that poem. If anything, I mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I will.
1: Yeah, yeah that's what I guess I agree to. When
0: I said. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I can, you know, I can be more specific. No, I, I can. It's fine.
1: I think so much of what we need as humans is, um, a recourse for our worry, like a, an answer to the kinds of things that terrify us and worry us and and for so many reasons and in so many ways, we live in a in a deeply troubled and troubling time with so many, many things about which to worry. Um, and so that that poem I I related to that student, right that. Staying up all night, just enthralled with with care and fear and concern. But the the thing that I find really interesting in that poem is the gift of the knife coming not from the student themselves, that the student doesn't craft the knife, but that the teacher, companion, friend. Um, supporter crafts the knife and bestows it on the student who is then able to take that charge and use it. And I think that that's such a key is understanding how to forge community um, and connection with people who really have your best interest in mind and, um, and are going to help you out of your crippling
0: doubts. Yeah, yeah and fears and worries, but also to, to trust. Um, and, and also that to just know like, this
1: is probably not something that can happen alone that you really need companionship in order to make that next step.
0: Yeah. And then go out looking for trouble together. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what kind of trouble, but. Hey, right. that's such an interesting <laughs> It makes me curious about what the original was and, and what I, might be a translation, I, I you know? Like
1: that's one of those things that, like, that word in translation um, is probably not exactly the word that we are receiving in English, right? Yeah, in, right. In the original, it's probably a little different, and sometimes translation... Sometimes translation can really fail us. Um, I have this friend who wrote this really fascinating... Um, book memoir nonfiction book um called the grammar of god which she talks about um she grew up in a um a jewish household that talked about the the jewish bible like all the time like it was just like dinner conversation (laughs) they would talk about um the hebrew bible and um and she was in her second round of graduate school. So she was like a grown up human being um, and ended up taking a class, uh, a year long class on the Bible. And she would just sit in this class with just utter like confusion and dismay. And because the English Bible, she would just be like, it would take me an entire semester to describe to you why that translation is appalling to me. <laughs> oh, because she had grown up so deeply entrenched in um, the Hebrew Bible and its culture and community, which is very much about talking back and and it's it's a kind of a multi sourced text, right? It isn't this top down one word one story um, chronological narrative, and so the way that the English Bible has been delivered to us the English version of the Bible like this is one voice and one reality and a leads to b leads to c it's just not the way she had learned this text yeah Uh, yeah. and and it it's like all these cultural differences that happen with this fundamental text being um translated differently essentially but not just the translation but like everything that comes from t- translation means that the delivery is different and the narrative is different and etc so it's a fascinating book you should read it
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i wrote i wrote it down
1: I think a lot about um how the words that we the words that we take as gospel, right, or the words that we take as truth are so dependent on the language that is our first language, For my first language, it's I'm not going to say our, um, that is my first language. And that I have to then always push a little bit deeper and think about the roots of that language or how it is that I've received that word. Uh, what the inherent biases are that are built into the those words, um, and how those all shape my my ideas and the way that I move through the world.
0: Yeah. So that so but you so you're talking as the receiver of those messages, right? As the reader and stuff. But well, how are you as the creator to kind I, of flip that?
1: I'm talking over you is what I'm doing. <laughs>
0: It's okay. No, no, no. I just, I just wanted to ask you um, what that's like being the creator of something, you know, being the poet, being the creator for whatever message you might be receiving from, you know, let's just say the divine. Um, And are you mindful of how the expression of that comes out in terms of language? If not, then not. But I know that you have this awareness as a reader. Um, and thinking about cultural context and translations and things. But as the creator, as the poet, are those same things in your consciousness as you're shaping a poem or an essay?
1: Yes. Yes, they absolutely are in my consciousness. Mm. In the process of creating what I write, which does not necessarily mean that when I sit down to write every single word I'm interrogating as I'm writing it, because that would be crippling and I would probably never get anything done. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean certainly I do exercises when I'm when I'm kind of need to get jump started and need to really think of things where the the task at hand that day is to open up the dictionary and look at, you know, I have a poem where um, there's a line in it where my dictionary has 64 definitions for the word open and none of them define how I feel now that you are gone. Right. Like I, I got to the drafting of that poem and I was thinking about that idea and I looked up the word open and I was like, well, who knew 64 is a lot of definitions for one word. Um, particularly when it meant also that there was a lack of that that openness that you have when you're really grieving somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, so sometimes, sometimes like interrogating the word and the language is part of the draft, you know, the process of writing, but usually it's a process, part of the process of revision,
0: Mm -hmm. right?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, that I don't take the language that I'm using for granted. And I really, I work with the dictionary and, And with with, an, with a dictionary that gives me access to etymologies um, so that I can really think about where, I can think about what work my language is doing. So I'll give you an example. There's some words that I am mindful of because I know they're, histories and I know the ways that their histories imbue meaning and and pain and of course we have a lot of those that are obvious right that we have words that are kind of move out of our language because we uh, begin to understand um that they are slurs right very frequently ethnic slurs or misogynistic slurs mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. and so but they were common usage and now we kind of work i and the community of people who i um m- keep my time with work to remove those kinds of conscious and unconscious slurs but then those words like assassin mm um which is linked to this uh it's linked to the crusades right so in a sense it's linked to some some very old cultural spiritual cultural battles right um so it's linked to this time of the crusades when um when there's like one group of people who were called hashish eaters and like the hashish were became the assassins, assassins, right? Like it's sort of that kind of blurred together. And now think about the way that we use assassin in in this contemporary language. It's really quite frequently scanted towards Middle Eastern, like Islam, brown people, right? Like that's the way we use the word. Like we don't tend to use that word assassin when we're talking about one of these white guys who's gone into you know some space and right he's the lone wolf oh. yeah right and so that <laughs> like that use of language still carries with it racist <laughs> cultural biases and so i am really mindful when i use a word like that right because i happen to know the history and i also talk about it when i hear other people um, using it and i think that um i think that this is this is a practice, right? Like, it's not just like a, it's not just a political thing. It's really for me, like a practice of thinking that if, if in fact, in the, in the like scripture of the tradition I was raised in, the word was the first thing and the word becomes God, right? The word becomes the embodied spirit. Then I got to be really mindful about my words, right? Right.
0: (laughs) Right.
1: Right. <laughs> and I got to be really mindful about the words of the community that surrounds me and is supposed to be supporting
0: me. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. So good. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, I'm just going to listen and then just let her <laughs> <it> go. <laughs> um, so in, in thinking about, you know, you were talking about being mindful of The words I love that you brought in, like that first, those first two verses of Genesis, you know, in the beginning with the word, um, and the word is God. And in the yoga, um, philosophy, the word is om, you know, which is is known as the unstruck sound, which is essentially God. Um, so do you, when you are writing um, anything, are you connected? in a way that feels like it's coming from somewhere else.
1: Um, I have to correct you. That's actually the very beginning of the, of the gospel of John. Oh, it is. Yes. Well, yeah. Which, is, which is <laughs> interesting, We're actually talking about a new Testament as opposed to, to, to the old Hebrew Bible to circle all the way back to that. But anyhow, <laughs>
0: yeah, no, thank you for that correction.
1: Um, so your other question was, repeat
0: the other question. I was asking you if when you are writing, if you feel that that inspiration is, or that, that gesture to, or that urge to write is coming from um, somewhere divine. Myself. This becomes,
1: I think, one of the most difficult questions for me to answer um, on a lot of levels. Um, As a woman and as a Black person in this culture, to say that my—that I am not the agent (laughs) of this— of this genius, right? Like that I'm not the agent who's the maker. Um, and I'm just like channeling somebody else's energy is super dangerous, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: because for ever, um, the idea has been that black people or women do not have the agency and the, and the intellectual intelligence to be their own makers in these kinds of ways. So mm-hmm. I'm, here. <laughs> um of writing all the way into this idea that like th- of the inspiration comes from something other than me also the only way that inspiration is going to be able to strike me if it is a source from outside is if i have the discipline and the wherewithal to get my body in the chair mm-hmm. Um, so that still requires a level of disciplined attention, focused dedication, skill building, so that when the like lightning strikes me, my body and my my muscle memory is like ready to do what it needs to do. When I teach students, I say that these exercises that I'm giving them um, are frequently they can think of it like running scales, if they are, if they are used to musical instruments or doing wall squats and (laughs) if they're used to, um, a kind of aerobic sport, which seem boring and tedious and have nothing to do seemingly with the moment, um, when they need to perform. But if they don't do those wall squats and wind sprints the day of the race, they are not like their body is not able to do what it needs to do. Right. Right. So there's a ton of work as a writer that is just tedious, boring work that will not come to fruition in any kind of obvious way. But that is the work that needs to be done so that when yes, the inspiration strikes, or so that the, 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 the news comes from elsewhere that we are able to, to be the vessels for Mm. Um, we are ready and we are able to do what we need to do. Lucille Clifton, um, who is one of my absolute heroes on so many levels, but she's one of the most important writers to me, has a... some pieces i'm like pausing because like it's like i don't quite know what to call them um in one of her books called the message and the message is just that it's it's words that she has received and she Mm. um does not hedge about that like she says that these are words that she has received and so many of them have to do with like you're just a vessel you're not special (laughs) you're a vessel you happen to be here if you didn't happen to be there we would find somebody else
0: (laughs) 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 who's ever willing to receive whoever
1: is willing able present we will find um and I have I have taken that as very instructive that I need to be there um and I have to be ready and able to open myself up to something larger, I I speak a lot about alternate alternate intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, I Can think. That,
0: what that is?
1: Yeah, I think like this. The the exactly the kind of cultural impetus that I started saying that I push against the idea that black people or women are not smart enough to be writers, <laughs> poets, and, and real artists, um, comes from this idea that there's like one kind of intelligence and it looks a certain way and it presents a certain way. And if you do not present your intelligence that way, you're not smart.
0: Mm. But like,
1: That kind of intelligence would suggest that elephants aren't intelligent because they, unless, except for in the few things that they do that right. remind us of ourselves right. um, or that bears aren't intelligent or that birds are fish. And there's a lot of research being done now that is suggesting that fish have like inordinate intelligences, right? That birds are incredibly intelligent beings, Um, The trees have Mm -hmm. communication networks and things like that. So these kinds of alternative intelligences that do not resemble our intelligences still are intelligences and still are communications and still are languages. They're just not English. (laughs) They're just not like, just don't look like us. And so I think as we open ourselves up to the reality and the, Power of these alternate alter- intelligences, we actually might open ourselves up to those intelligences. Right. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. the moment I say I value the way that trees communicate, could it be possible that I could begin to access those modes of communication also? Yeah. Um, and how much of what we call the spirit is people who are able to access these alternate intelligences um, and alternate modes of communication and community with the living world
0: yeah it's funny because i have two trees that i visit often one is in my backyard and one is um on my walk to uh, to my office on campus and um and I stop by and I say hello to these trees. One is an elm tree, um, the one on campus, and then the other one is um, an oak tree. And what I do is I go up next to the tree and I place my hand on its bark. Um, and I just stand there and I close my eyes. Sometimes I look up at the branches, um, but I can sense the energy of each of those trees. And then what's interesting, what I'm noticing as I'm, uh, I'm recently visiting the tree in my backyard, um, the the elm tree I've visited for years, um, but this one in my backyard, my own backyard, I'm like I never thought about it. Um, it was only recent, but I'm noticing that there's a different kind of energy from both of those trees. And I find that so fascinating because now I'm wondering, is it the network of trees that each of these trees belong with that creates that nuance of a different energy? Or is it the kind of tree that it is? So I'm I'm kind of creeping in towards exploring this um, what you're calling alternative intelligence because it's just so it's so fascinating to to be in communion with other things besides other humans is it feels opening. Mhm. Mhm. So I know that you garden, so I, I know that you have a, a close relationship with with nature. Also,
1: I do before we started recording, I was talking about just what a long winter <laughs> it's been and how that is making me feel, but last week the robins came back and um and we have a northern flicker who drums on our on our gutter by our bedroom which Often is not so pleasant. <laughs> Something that sounds like a drill going right outside of your bedroom. But I was so happy when he came back. I was like, "You drum away and find yourself a mate, baby." Yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> spring. <laughs> so um, yeah, I feel like that kind of communion also keeps us in touch with the cycles, right mm-hmm. of, of of life. And, um, that ability to stay in touch with the cycles of life keeps me aware of where I am to circle all the way back to the poem at the beginning. Like it, it does kind of act like a knife made for me by my friends out there. Um, to cut through this, like, oh my gosh, this, um, this winter is going to last forever. (laughs) And what will that be like that gift that the Robins return and the um, Northern Flickers return was like a gift of a knife to cut through that fear for me.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's so good. I love how you brought that back to the poem. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, beautiful, beautiful. See, this is why you're amazing. You just, you just find ways to just all bring it together. Um, So I wanted to see if there's, if we could talk a little bit about how um, nature and spirituality and poetry all intersect for you in any way you, you want to talk about that. I mean, do you find that writing poetry helps you connect with those things or that poetry can help you express some of the experiences that you might have or not have, um, or just maybe, you know, poetry is the thing is the the spiritual experience or the connection.
1: I don't know if I don't think that the latter, um, applies for me I mean I was raised I was raised in a, in a very um, Christian household by my, um, my grandfather was an American Baptist minister and my mother is that kind of preacher's kid who right who's still there's like, I think there's like two kinds of preacher's kids. They either like go completely away from church or they're like, my mom is like the church lady. She's super, super involved in whatever church she is in. Um, and so I think though, I do believe that the word is sacred and how we use it is sacred. I don't think it's the same as spirituality or religion. Like I just like poetry Poetry is its own thing. Hmm. Um, is not a way through which I worship.
0: Mm.
1: Um, and so, but I do feel like when I am writing well, and in order to write well, I have to pay a I have to exercise what I call radical empathy, mm. um, which is uh, um, really, really intense, um, almost, almost revolutionary, um, but also kind of agitated um, in terms of like the idea of like a free radical, like intense, uh, energetic connection. <laughs> with the things that are my subject matter right and Mm. so this has gotten me moving away from calling from wanting to call trees it's right and to like right like I don't want to I don't want to objectify things I don't want to I don't want to it things I want to make the world around me, the living world around me alive as much as possible. Um, I want to pay attention. I want to be detailed. Um, This is difficult for me in a sense because I I, I actually have like a, I have some degree of face blindness, right? And so I have difficulty actually really registering faces and then remembering them. And so it, Mm. it causes even more attention and care that I have to, um, dedicate to the world that I am observing and recording. And I think that, that kind of dedicated attention, um, that I, I require of my own writing, um, and that I require of the writing that I, that I read and that I admire, um, is that which would bring me close to the sacred, right? Like it's that, mm-hmm makes me understand that all, all that I am describing in the world is sacred in its own
0: right. So the poems that sounds to me are ways to get into the sacred or to be reminded of these, these existences as sacred.
1: Right. But it's, but I'm not, I'm not, I don't, feel like I'm writing a sacred text, right? I right, like feel right. like the poem or essay that I have then written, it becomes like some sort of new gospel. Oh, I yeah, just, no. like in order to do it right, <laughs> I have to do it well.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't implying that what we produce, it becomes like sacred text, but it's just a, a portal into that spiritual consciousness or a spirit like connecting with spirit, um, in some way that maybe not all poems do that. Um, but I just think about sometimes when I'm looking for, you know, an answer to something that might exist beyond the physical existence, that maybe I'll write a poem that will help open up another space into which I can see beyond, the material world
1: and I think not not all writers think like this right no <laughs> uh, and they're right not all writers think like this and not all writers kind of care um in these same ways um about moving beyond their own consciousness that's why I'm, in, why I'm not <laughs> <laughs> um or and a lot of writers who i think i would feel in their work a movement beyond their own consciousness may not recognize or you may not use that language to describe what it is that they're doing and and so i find that interesting too maybe this is like another version of like an alternate intelligence there's like all these different ways you know like the ways that sometimes like a really intense astrophysicist, right? Like the, like the, like a truly um, practiced um, scientist would probably not be talking to you about the spirit and the blah, blah, blah of the universe. Um, And yet I think in the depths of that practice, they are also accessing (laughs) this, this, something largerness right and they have their own language for describing I just my daughter was listening to this kids podcast yesterday that says that there's there's this concept of such a thing as the you know there's like there's the big chill and there's the big stretch and then there's the big blink oh I think that that was what it was called. And the big blink is essentially like the universe kind of stretches so far that all of it's, I I was like half listening. So your podcast people are going to like in the comment section be like, that is not what it is at all. (laughs) (laughs) What I heard was basically that the the universe is like stretched to its capacity essentially. And like a rubber band, it kind of snaps and snaps. And resets. It's like a little fuse box. And it, like, snaps and resets. And, like, we don't know how many times this might have happened. Because when it happens, everything wipes out and starts over again. Yeah, I've heard this. the universe wiped out and started over again. And I was like, now I have to have a moment, right? Like, I was, like, chopping vegetables. (laughs) But... And like, and so that, you know, that is what I'm talking about. Like this astrophysicist just blew my mind. Right. And they're, they're talking numbers and physics and all these other things. And that is the language that they are using to to describe something that I only have words to describe. But what it is, is we are, we are, we are small, we are powerless, we are unimportant and yet we are crucial, right? right. Like that All of that together it's, is to me like the base of so, so much religious and spiritual thought, like cross-culturally, right? Um, and how it is that we, how do we sit with that, right? And one of the ways that I've learned to sit with that is I just like write my way through it mm-hmm. uh, and try to figure out like, where I am in this big, giant universe, and where my community stands, right? Like yeah. that's I've, that's how the only way that I've learned.
0: Yeah, how can I be both big and small? Yeah, <laughs> at the same it's time, completely <laughs> irrelevant. Like, how does that work? It's like this really matters to me, but but really in the big picture of things, it doesn't. So, <laughs> like, what? Wow. Oh, I mean, the complexities of of this existence. Um it's funny because the, the the trending phrase is that we are spirit spiritual beings having um, and I try to remind myself of that when you know my kids are getting on my nerves. <laughs> I'm like all right I'm just having a human experience. All right. All right. I'll just go with it. Um but it it just it just I guess puts things into perspective where we, you know, thinking back at the poem about this worry and this fear, like what are we, what are we worried about? Like what are we afraid of? If the if the universe is going to reset any moment now, and then blammo, we're gone. You know, any moment now, it's like a hundred million years from now, we're safe. But <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> We're safe, but our descendants, I don't know. I don't know. hundred million years, I, I feel like <laughs> there the
1: likelihood of the human species still being around in a hundred million years is, is
0: slip. <laughs> Pretty slip, yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, man. Well, I, um, I did want to say thank you, Camille, for sharing this um, time with me to talking about the whole range of writing and weapons and trees and spirit that you would like to share to close out our episode
1: oh a poem of my own that I yes. would share to close out this episode I probably should have um, been prepared for that but you know yeah. what um, this poem is in some ways not going to sound at all like what we were talking about and then hopefully hopefully it will also um, connect. It's from Traffic Cascade, Natural History. The rufous hummingbird builds her nest of moss and spider webs and lichen. I held one once, smaller than my palm, but sturdy. I would have told Mrs. Jeffers from Court Street, if in those days of constant flights between California and Virginia, I'd wandered into that Oakland museum. Any chance I could, I'd leave my rented house in Lynchburg. I hated the feeling of stuckness that old city's humidity implied. You need to stop running away so much, Mrs. Jeffers would say, when my visits were over and I leaned down to hug her. Why her words come to me? The woman dead for the better part of this new century, while I think of that nest of web and lichen, I cannot rightly say. She had once known my mother's parents. The whole lot of them, even then, in their 20s, must already have been as old as God. They were black. The kind name for them in those days would have been Negroes and the daily elections called for between their safety and their sanity must have torn even the strongest of them down. Mr. Jeffers had been a laborer, the sort I regret, I don't remember. He sat on their front porch all day near his oxygen tank, waving occasionally to passing Buicks and Fords, praising the black walnut that shaded their yard. She would leave the porch sometimes to prepare their meals. I still have her yeast roll recipe, the best I've ever tried. Mostly, though, the same Virginian breeze that encouraged Thomas Jefferson's tomatoes passed warmly through their porch eaves while we listened to the swing chains and no one talked or moved too much at all. Little had changed in that house since 1952. I guess it's no surprise they come to mind when I think of that cup of spider webs and moss made softer by the feathers of some long gone bird. She used to say, I like it right here where I am in my little house here with him. I thought her small minded. In the winter, I didn't visit very often. Their house was closed up and overheated. Everything smelled of chemical mothballs. She had plastic wrappers on the sofas and chairs. Everyone must have once held someone as old and small and precious as this.
0: Mm. Mm. Thank you. I'm telling you, it fits every time when you were reading. I was like, it fits, it fits, it fits. <laughs> it fits. <laughs> oh, Camille, thank you so much for bracing me with your presence and having this beautiful conversation with me. Um, I really appreciate you taking time out of your your busy day. And I don't know. I just you're amazing. You're so amazing. Thank you for
1: inviting me. I'm honored to be on your show and um good luck with it it's just a really a fascinating and important gift that you are giving your listeners so thank you for including me in the project
0: thank you and listeners uh until next time the divine light in me bows to the divine light in you namaste What happens when we can't hear our intuitive voice, our true north, our guiding light? We tend to get overwhelmed and indecisive. We lose our way. This is when we need to step back from the noise of our daily lives. I invite you to retreat with me on August 5th to the 9th to the serene setting of wine country in Sonoma County, California, where you can get quiet and reconnect with yourself, where you can tune in to your intuitive voice where the sun can nourish your soul and the earth ground you into your body. This is an opportunity to realign with your true life's purpose, to remember who you are, to come home to yourself. Visit com slash retreats for more information. Live your best life now.